This evening, while you were just uh, sitting together, I thought that I would take a um, slow walk up the drive from my room, which is below the gate, down below the, the new community hall. Just wanted to really take my time, which sometimes during the day we don't have so much of an opportunity to do, and just walk slowly up. And the um, sun was just getting setting a bit and getting a little bit darker. And um, the turkeys were settling and getting quieter. They were all kind of in the, the new grass around the, the community hall down there. It was just this real sense of things being very settled and very quiet. There wasn't anyone else around, just walking quietly, slowing down, and really feeling the, in a way, the opportunity that this place gives us to do that when we really start to slow down and notice, notice what else is all around. And after seeing the turkeys, I, as I came through the gate and uh, approached the dining hall and, and just looking down at my path, I saw written in chalk on the path, welcome turkeys. <laughs> and it was so friendly, you know. <laughs> It looked like it was a little bit faded, so I don't think anybody here put that on the driveway. <laughs> Although we don't know for sure. But it was such a, you know, welcoming, you know, sweet uh, message as I'm walking up the, up the road. And then just as I got a little bit further, I saw another um, chalked message that said, Free your mind. It's wonderful, you know, that we just, it's like, uh, like these messages are all around and helping us wake up, help, helping us remember uh, what, what we're here for, what we're doing here together. James mentioned last night, you know, the, the first day can be very difficult, very challenging for people, even people who have a lot of experience in the practice, not just people who are here for the first, first retreat. You know, just encountering a lot of difficult mind states and different, difficult body states. And when he asked people to raise their hands for the different difficult states, nearly everybody in the room raised their hand for each one. So, you know, the first day can be, can be challenging in that way. And in some ways, the second day can also be a little bit challenging, as you might be aware of today. And, and it may be a little bit more difficult because in some ways you're more awake. And so you're more awake to your mind and, and your body and the, some of the difficult, painful sensations and the difficult mind states. And sometimes we, we call the second day really the day of suffering, you know, or the, in, in, in Pali, in the, in, the, in the Buddhist language, it's called dukkha, dukkha, which is actually what I want to talk about more tonight. But it, just to say before I go on to that, um, it's interesting as, we're, as we become more awake to what's actually here and feeling, you know, the, some of the difficult mind states and body states. Even so, I was hearing from people today that there was definitely a settling that was happening, a settling into experience, more of a connecting with 
one's experience. And in that, there few people express some sense of relief, you know, kind of a sense of relief that this is really possible, something, this connection, this coming back into the present moment more fully is possible. One person mentioned that, that he felt hopeful, you know, really hopeful because his, his, uh, his, his life, his recent life hadn't been so easy, had been challenging. And just dropping in a little more today said he felt hopeful that, that some release was possible, you know, some, some freedom was possible. Another, another woman expressing, you know, that relief with emotion, just felt all this emotion and some tears and sadness, you know, that, the, that there can be this relief and this release, and, and at the same time, it can bring up different kinds of emotional responses, you know, of, uh, of some sadness even as well of what came before and how difficult life can be. And as we connect more and feel that in this space, there's something, this, this woman said, it feels right. It feels right to feel this now, to be in this experience now, even though there was sadness and tears and emotion and without a sense of relief. So all of this, you know, all of this starts to go, starts to go on as we start to drop and there's a dropping. It doesn't necessarily mean that we just drop into a peace, we drop into kind of a clarity or a calm. It means that we start to uh, feel and sense more clearly what our experience actually is. And in the busyness of our life and um, the activity of our life and sometimes the stress of our life, we may miss that connection. And I know a lot of people come here for that. There's kind of a longing. Sometimes we feel a longing to connect with ourselves again and coming into the silence and coming into the solitude of this sanctuary really allows for that. Especially when we can start to let go of some of our expectations and what we think is going to happen in the meditation. Sometimes these expectations that we're going to feel this deep peace but rather what, we've, what we start to experience are some of the memories or some of the, some of the uh, uh, situations or relationship uh, situations that we put on the back burner and they come into the front burner and then we start to feel and sense and experience what's real and truthful in our lives right now. And with that, some emotion and some feeling and maybe some reactivity and some anger and all of that. All of that can start to arise, and and there is space for all of that. That's not uh, that's completely natural. It's come as as James said last night. You're right on track. You're right on track. As we open, I, I in the in the groups, I was really I kept having this sense of this of this of a flower bud. You know, like you're all like these flower buds and, and just as you're here that the flower just starts to open and open and open and each one of you flower. You know, that's kind of how I see you. You know, I just see you as these <laughs> flowering uh, beings, you know, and it's just really, it's so, it's so uh, beautiful for, for me to witness. 
when we're here on retreat, um, we really get a, a, a first-hand, direct experience of the Buddhist teachings and, and the real fundamental aspect of what the Buddha taught. And, and, and primarily, right after the Buddha had his awakening under the Bodhi tree, one of his first insights was into the truth of this, what's called the truth of suffering, or the truth of dukkha. And, and this word dukkha, uh, from, the, from the ancient um, uh, language, of it's kind of a Pali-Sanskrit uh, mix, this word dukkha, it gets translated in many different ways, and it, the, the, the translation we often hear is suffering, but sometimes that's, the, that's a, a translation that maybe is too broad, and some people can't necessarily relate to it all the time. This suffering, it sounds you know, really, really intense. But I, I, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha came upon this um, realization of the truth that there is dukkha in this life, just really acknowledging that, naming that, and that there is a way out of it. There's a way out of it. So I want to just, just explore this word dukkha just a little bit because I, I've recently come upon a, a definition that I really liked a lot. It kind of helped me kind of put it into place a little bit more for me. And um, dukkha, when you break it down to the first, uh, the first syllable, du, that means it's translated as bad or difficult. Bad or difficult. It really means not placed. It's not placed in the right way. It's off axis. So that's what it means by bad or difficult. It's just off axis. And the ka, K-H-A, means empty hole. It's an empty hole. And it, it's, it points to like an opening, like on a wheel. So that opening, that empty hole on a wheel, so the dukkha, one way of talking about it or thinking about it, is thinking about it as an axis, an, an, ax, an axle on a wheel. And the axle's in that hole, but it's not seated properly. So because it's not seated properly, when the wheel goes round on the cart, you're getting a bad ride. You're not, <laughs> you're not getting a smooth ride. <laughs> so, so you need to get the axle put into that hole properly, and then you'll get a smooth ride. So, so what the teachings really are about, and, I'm, and I, I love that because it, 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 it's most likely that that's where it came from because these uh, words really were developed from very ordinary and basic life activities, you know. So we're just, you know, on a cart and the axle's not on the wheel properly. So, so it's rocky. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's not satisfactory. <laughs> So, so our job is to realign that axle, to get it in properly, get in the hole properly, so that we will have a smooth ride. And that's really, so, the, so, mu- so, the, so much of the teachings are about understanding this dukkha, this, this unsatisfactory nature, this kind of per- pervasive unsatisfactoriness. You know, 
What is that? Why, why does life seem to have this condition of being so unsatisfactory? Like we can't seem to get it right. We can't seem to get things lined up in a way that is actually going to make us feel good. And, and in a, not only just feel good, but feel good permanently, right? That's what we're, what we're looking for, what we're aiming for. So we want to get that seated properly, get it in the right alignment, so that we can then relax and let things fall into place. Let things fall into their proper place. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that what we encounter is going to be smooth. And I don't think that's what the Buddha was actually talking about because life is, life is dukkha quite a lot of the time. There is dukkha in this life. So it doesn't mean that we're going to find all the conditions in our life smooth and pleasurable and easy once we get this understanding. What it really means is that we've come into an understanding, we've come into a right relationship with the conditions of life. Because the conditions of life are going to be, as we've been exploring, pleasant, unpleasant, and somewhere in between. All conditions in this world are going to be on that continuum. They will not be in any steady state ever. Life by nature is imperfect. Imperfect according to our own imaginations of what perfection would be. It's imperfect. The conditions in this life will never measure up to our expectations. They will never measure up to our standards. It's because all conditions are unstable. All conditions of this mind, all conditions of this body, they're unstable, constantly in transition, not enduring any permanency at all, continually falling apart, and then coming back together again and falling apart and coming back together again. There's nothing in this world that we can hold together. You know, it, it's, it's, we, we kind of know that. It's sort of like we, we, in our deepest bones, we know that, but we will do everything we can to resist that truth, to cover up that truth, to avoid that truth, and keep trying, <laughs> right? Just keep trying to hold on and hold things together and build things up the way we want them to be through our fantasies, through our ideas, through our imaginations, through our expectations. And then when things fall apart, it's like we get surprised or disappointed or like think something's wrong or what happened. You know, we sometimes think something's wrong with me. I know I did for a long time before I really understood the nature of this reality, the nature of this existence. I thought something was wrong with me, that I could not get my mind and my body to a place where I really felt happy and satisfied. 
why couldn't I was like, why couldn't I do that? It seemed like that was the goal. It seemed like that's what this was all about. And that certainly seemed to be the cultural message to be, you know, to have the most success you could have, to, you know, have the, the, the most beautiful things or the most, you know, beautiful houses or all this, you know, kind of cultural, confused idea of what we're actually supposed to be doing here. And then, of course, I take it all so personally until I wake up to the truth of the matter, which is there isn't anything that I can hold on to. There isn't anything that I can make permanent. And yet when we look at our minds, and you can even see this here for your meditation uh, practice, we get very busy and spend so much energy trying to get our experience to be the way we imagine it should be or want it to be, which usually um, uh, translates as pleasurable. Right. Is that we, we like it. We, we enjoy what's happening. And so, so we're, we spent a lot of time and energy for that. And then it creates more anxiety and more restlessness because it doesn't work. We keep finding ourselves back in a, in a condition that actually maybe is unpleasant or unsatisfying. We can get so preoccupied with trying to find a way to keep fixing things. So the mind, our mind gets quite busy with fixing and manipulating and controlling and analyzing and figuring out and something. I, I must be able to find the resolution to the problem of my unsatisfactoriness, my unhappiness. But we keep looking out. It's like we keep looking out to things and experiences and uh, people and situations and the culture and the world. And it's like the spiritual traditions and the meditation says, turn back. Look at your own mind. Look at your own heart. And look at how you're actually relating to the conditions of this world. Because unless we do, we're going to continue to get into this, what's called in this tradition, the grasping and attaching on to our own ideas about how we imagine things should be. It's really okay. It's not that we're not supposed to have some motivation and intention to try to make ourselves and our loved ones in this world happier and more comfortable and more secure and make this world a safer place to be. It's not that we're not supposed to be doing that, but it's more how we're doing that. Because for the, be, unless we truly understand the nature of, this, of, this, of the conditions of this world, we are most likely going to be quite tense and uh, perhaps angry and railing against reality and the way things are. And our mind and our heart isn't necessarily going to be very open, very clear, very connected with the way things really are. The meditation really helps us come into a place of connection and settledness and ease with ourselves so then perhaps we can begin to see more clearly 
the nature of things and the way things are. We kind of clear our mind and clear our heart so that we can see. We can see what we're really in relationship to and how things are. And in doing that, perhaps there will be a clearer path that we can then follow that isn't so distorted and confused by our own imaginings and ideas and our anger and our greed and our confusion. What would it be like to begin to clear, clear the mind and clear the heart and open to things the way they are from that place? If we think that we can make conditions to be permanent, to be permanently the way we want them to be, whatever that picture looks like for you, whether it means, for me, it was always that I'd be in some kind of um, kind of open, loving, wise, compassionate place all the time. You know, somehow I would sort of be this like almost angelic figure that just be kind of floating through life. Nothing would touch me. You know, I wouldn't feel an ounce of stress. You know, that my body wouldn't age, you know, I mean, it's just like, (laughs) somehow I'd get it, you know, I'd find this eternal, uh, you know, life, I don't know, you know, the mind gets into such strange and crazy ideas, you know, and, and our teacher Joseph Goldstein um, calls that a, a diluted enchantment, you know, if, as soon as we, we touch that, we, we feel good or we feel happy or there's some sense of calm, it's, we get so enchanted, but it's diluted. Because we're not really seeing. We're not seeing that things are going to fall apart. Things cannot endure. There's no endurance. Everything is unstable. Yeah. Things are coming and going and arising and passing. It's not going to be quite the way we want it to be. And this is when we start to get into the right alignment. This is the right alignment with things, where we start to let go, let go of our grasping, of our holding, of our resisting. The Buddha talks about three categories of dukkha. Uh, The first one is called dukkha, dukkha. (laughs) <laughs> not just dukkha, it's called dukkha dukkha. And dukkha dukkha is ordinary dukkha, you know. <laughs> it's just the dukkha of being in a, in a body, being born, actually. It's the dukkha of being born. As soon as you're born, you're heading towards death. That's just the way it is. There's no, there's no way out of that. I remember um, one teacher, one of our wonderful teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, um, uh, a Canadian monk, who, who just said, life is death-bound. And I remember when the first time I read that, and I went, wow. <laughs> That's kind of a depressing thought. You know? But it's true, isn't it? The moment that we're born, that's where we're heading. So dukkha dukkha, dukkha dukkha is the painful experience of birth, aging, sickness, and death. That is what we call the wheel, the wheel of samsara, the wheel of this life and death. Right? And as we open to this, as we come to terms with this, 
we are not deluding ourselves, we're not confusing ourselves that it's any other way. That's the way it is. There's pain in birth, there's pain in aging, and in sickness, and in dying and death. This is the ordinary, this is just ordinary dukkha. You know? <laughs> dukkha, dukkha. Not satisfying, but it is the way it is. The second uh, category of dukkha is the dukkha that is produced by change. Because everything is unstable, because there is no permanence, because nothing can endure in its stability, everything's changing. There's a dukkha that arises when we don't uh, come into the right alignment with that truth and we hold on. We hold on to the things that are slipping away. It's like sand slipping through our fingers. And when we try to grasp onto that, there's a wonderful phrase, it says we get rope burn. It's like we hold on to that rope and that rope is slipping through our fingers and if we hold on very tight, we're going to get burned. And that's the second category of dukkha, the dukkha that is produced by change and by holding on to the things that change. In this world, we can see, particularly now, you know, with climate change, all the things that we're starting to uh, see, the images, the stories, the facts that are coming through with, with climate change. And if you see the new, if you look at the news, you look at um, your d- devices, YouTube, all that, you see the images, particularly this year, you know, recently with the flooding in, in uh, Louisiana, the worst f- flooding in history. They've never had flooding like that. And so much uh, uh, disaster and destruction and some death and, you know, just what people uh, had to go, go through or are still going through because of the disaster of the flooding. You know, dukkha, this is dukkha. Dukkha produced by change. And, and this, there's what, what does it mean for the heart to open to this truth? This is the truth of this world. You know, the, the hurricanes and the tornadoes, it, particularly here in California, it's just since May, our fire season here in California, it's been one of the most disastrous fire seasons that we've had. And I did a a little research before I came in. And up until last week, just August, that's last August 27th, there have been, just since May, that's four months, five months, there has been 4,270 fires in California um, that have been burning. And and 185,000 acres of land has burned with all those fires. And in that, there's 700 homes that were burned to the ground. 700 homes, 700 families displaced, and uh, another 300 structures that were burned. I mean, you know, just burning. It's burning. And sometimes that's a metaphor that's used for this wheel this wheel of life and death, you know, this, the world is burning, the world is on fire. We don't have to look far, it's not just climate change, it's all the, the, the racial difficulty that's happening in the country, not just now, but for uh, hundreds of years. And we see the images 
We hear the stories and it's painful. It's dukkha. Can the heart open to this or do we bury our head in the sand? Because it's too much. We don't want to feel it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to attend to it. But can we open our mind, open our heart, open our ourselves to the truth of the way things are? And as I said before, rather than perhaps going into the, the reactivity, no, it shouldn't be like this. That may be a reaction and certainly will be the reaction sometime, but then as we begin to let go and open and feel and sense, perhaps then there is a path. There's a clear path of action that we can then begin to see and begin to follow. But it doesn't come when the mind is, is uh, contracted and confused in, the, in greed, hatred, and, and confusion. So opening to this dukkha, the second, so the first category, dukkha, dukkha, ordinary dukkha, the second, the dukkha that's produced by change. The third kind of dukkha is called sankara dukkha, and this is just basically general misery. (laughs) This is a really uplifting talk, isn't it? (laughs) No, just general misery. You know, sankara dukkha is the dukkha of the mind. You know, it's just our gen. It's just when we live in the world of the mind, it is dukkha, where the mind takes us the, through the memory and the and the the fantasies and the the stories and the ideas and the images and the overlays and our reactions and all of that. It is dukkha. Hmm. And the truth that things are never going to measure up. We can't have it the way we want it to be. I remember, actually, the first time I heard a talk on dukkha was from James. <laughs> I remember, I remember very, very clearly, for some reason, it was back in 1978. <laughs> and I remember... When James said, and I, I, it's funny that this is something that just made an impression in my mind. He said, because I remember he looked at us. It was a, a group of people. He was beginning his teaching back then. And he looked at us and he said, sounds really pessimistic, doesn't it? But it's realistic. I remember that line. It's such a, you know, it sounds so pessimistic, but it's realistic. And it's just, there's something, I, I just, there's something that actually uh, shifts in me when I go, my mind turns from it being pessimistic, like, I don't want to hear all that, you know, that sounds, that's depressing, to, this is realistic. It's like, we're getting real. And I think I love that, you know, this is what I, I, I cherish about this path and these teachings, is it gets me real. I have to take my head out of the sand. And I can tell you that it's been there for a long time. (laughs) And I know that there are ways that my head is still in the sand around particular issues and things that I still haven't really opened to and kind of opened my eyes to. But I am so... um, 
motivated to do so because that will f- I will be more free. I know the ways that my head is still in the sand keep me bound, keep me um, asleep. And I don't want to be asleep anymore. I want to wake up. I want to know what the bounds of this, of, of this uh, potential is for freedom in this very life. Freedom in this very life. What can I wake up to? In what ways am I still deluded? Am I not seeing clearly? And I know there is so much more. So this is realistic. One of our teachers, Ajahn Chah, one of the great Thai masters who was uh, uh, the teacher of many of our teachers from Thailand, he said, our practice is for when the rubber hits the road. It's not just to have these lovely meditative experiences. It's for staying connected to life, being engaged in life, participating fully in life with as much awareness, with as much wisdom, with as much compassion, with as much patience, with as much clarity as we possibly can. And that the potential for that continues to expand and expand and expand. But even as I deepen into the acceptance of the way things are in this world and know that things are, for the most part, out of my control, and I begin to let go of my own reactivity and my own argument with reality and how I want things to be, I still feel grief, and we all still feel grief. And if we're really honest with ourselves and truthful with ourselves and really feel into our heart and let ourselves be impacted by what's happening in this world right now, we feel the pain of that, the grief of that. We feel the dukkha of that. But this is necessary. It's necessary. It's not we, we might tend to think that that too we're supposed to somehow uh, let that go or overcome that, that grief. How can we not feel grief if we really allow ourselves to feel our humanity, our humanness, our human heart, our human body, our human mind? How could we not feel the grief, the pain, the sense of loss as we age and get sick and we die, as we see other people age and get sick and die, as we see the cruelty and the violence and the ignorance and the, uh, the, the, the way that, that people are in this world harming ourselves, harming others, how can we not feel the grief, the pain? For me, this is, wakes me up. This is part of the liberation. This is part of the freedom to allow myself to actually be impacted, be touched, be alive in this world, in, this ex- in my uh, present moment experience. 
So now for me, it's not about trying to get my experience to be any particular way. I lived most of my life like that. I had all kinds of ideas and images and expectations for what my life was going to look like, what I was going to be like in my life, what kinds of things I was going to achieve in my life. And of course, you know, having all the privilege that I have in my life, of course I thought that that would be possible. No one told me that it would be otherwise. And now I just see how, how really confused all that was because I was so identified and so fixated on that. And when, I didn't, when my experience didn't match my image, I thought something was wrong with me. And I would judge myself and I would be critical of myself and I would keep trying and trying and put more effort and more stress and more achievement. And it didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't work. And so now I'm not, I, it's, my experience isn't that important to me one way or the other. What matters is how I am with the conditions that are arising in my mind, the conditions that are arising in my body when my body's not well, or I experience um, some uh, degeneration in my body, or degeneration in my mind, you know, it's like, how am I with that? How am I being with that? Am I, am I holding on to old ideas, or am I resisting and reacting and being aversive and getting angry? Or is it possible to find a place of peace, a place of acceptance, a place of ease, not as a steady state, but as a way then to be able to continue to navigate the next arising set of conditions and then the next arising set of conditions that are always unknown, out of my control, unexpected, come out of left field, I don't know what's going to happen, but I want to be present for whatever arises in any given moment. Sometimes we think of that kind of as being a spiritual warrior, you know, kind of a a warrior for, for engaging in life with presence, with courage, with strength, with clarity, with compassion. You know, we want to bring, bring, cultivate those qualities of heart and mind to, to actually engage more fully with life rather than retreating or withdrawing in any, any way, any way at all. So feeling and sensing and, and being uh, impacted and awake to the way things are, feeling the grief, feeling the sense of loss, feeling the grief of letting go as I let go, as things change. What's that like? What's kind of, what kind of impact does that have? One of our teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, a, a Tibetan teacher, uh, was speaking about this uh, one time at one of the retreats about the grief and um, the, the sorrow that arises around the letting, the letting go and around the recognition of the truth of dukkha, the truth of unsatisfactoriness in this life. And he was really encouraging this welcoming, really inviting this uh, awareness to the way things are. And one of the things he suggested was he said to go up on the ridge at twilight, just as the sun is starting to settle, to set, uh, and is starting to get a, a little bit dark. 
and to sit on the ridge and just open to the passing day. Just the recognition that this day is passing and going away, never to return again. And just to open to that truth, feel it, see that disappearing of all of those conditions into, into the twilight. He said also to take a bottle of wine with you. <laughs> you know, kind of have a few sips, and not for people who are sober, you know, in the AA program, maybe take some non-alcoholic something. But, you know, just to, just to really sit and feel feel that fully, that passing, that all things are passing, all things are going, that letting go, that ultimately everything needs to be let go of. When we take that last breath, we can't take anything with us. We have to let go of everything. So in some ways, we might say that, uh, and we do say, that this path, we call it a path of renunciation, a path of letting go. And we begin to let go. And we start to let go a little bit. You know, first we just let go a little bit. And then we see that there's a little bit less dukkha. Yeah, just let go a little bit, there's a little bit less dukkha. And that gives us some encouragement. It gives us some faith to maybe let go a little bit more. And then we let go a little bit more. There's a, a little bit less dukkha. You, know? you go, oh, wow, the dukkha seems to be starting to fade away. And then we let go a lot. And there's a lot less dukkha. And it just, it builds our faith. It builds our trust that this is the path. This is the way. We begin to let go of all of these things that we're holding on to, all of our views and opinions and expectations and demands, but not as a way then we become passive, we become inactive, but really because this then allows us to rest into a place of clarity, a place of connection with reality as it is a way that we can then gather our resources, our, our innate beautiful qualities of mind and heart, our goodness, our uh, deepest nature, and then begin to enter into our relationship with ourselves, with others, with the world, the conditions of this world, in a wholly different way. We really need to have a bigger view. And our small mind, and maybe you're starting to see this, the mind, our small thinking mind, doesn't necessarily have the best grasp on reality. It has other kinds of ideas that it's got to take us away. But we need to have a bigger view than this small mind can offer. We need to have a different lens. If we're just seeing through what we call the ego mind or the thinking mind, the small mind, it's not the right lens for us as we begin to navigate this territory. It's too small of a lens to see truthfully, to see wisely, 
to see deeply. We really need to have the lens of awareness, the lens of mindful awareness to give us that bigger view, that more expansive view, so we can see the way things really are. This Franciscan monk, Franciscan priest actually said, Richard Rohr, who I really admire, he said, we need to open to larger vistas instead of rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking Titanic. You know, this ship is sinking, (laughs) right? And we're just kind of rearranging the chairs. Let's get off the ship. (laughs) Meaning, let's see in a bigger way, in a larger way. Open up. There's more going on here. And this can help us enter into a sacred space where we're breaking down the old normal. Right? The old normal. That which has always seemed normal, but it's old. It doesn't work anymore. We need fresh ideas, fresh ways of being here, fresh views, fresh ways of interacting with each other and being on this planet together. We need to break down those old normals where a true transformation of our dukkha, of our pain, can happen. And when our, tra- when our pain, our dukkha, begins to transform what it transforms into, are these beautiful qualities of compassion and love and peace and liberation. Richard Rohr also said, he said, if I don't transform my pain, I will certainly transmit it. (laughs) If I don't transform my pain, I will certainly transmit it. I will certainly act it out and I will cause harm to myself and to others out of my own confusion and my own ignorance. So being here really is an invitation for us, you know? Being here is an invitation for us to really participate in our experience in a new way. And, and it's not that we're just supposed to know how to do that. But we're learning, we're discovering, we learn tools, we learn new practices, we, we develop, uh, we get new ideas for ourselves, what's going to help bring more healing, what's going to bring more uh, well-being, what's going to open my heart. I mean, this path is a path that is going to bring us to greater awareness, greater love, greater openness and wisdom and liberation. So here is our opportunity right here while you're sitting on your cushion, while you're doing your walking meditation. Because we have most of our distractions, the outer distractions of our relationships, our work, all that, is taken away. It's, It's put aside for a little while. So you are really left with your own mind, with your own body, body condition, with your own heart. And perhaps you can find a new way to be in relationship with those conditions that are arising and passing 
in a way that will bring more ease and a greater sense of well-being. So my wish is that you um, really take advantage of this opportunity. You really use your time well here. Because what we will find is this really isn't only for us individually and the relationship that we come into with ourselves, but that transformation then affects every, every relationship and every condition, every situation that we come into contact with which then is like the ripples that go out on the pond and just touch every corner of the pond. The ripples just keep going out and out. And this is how we begin to transform this world. I think it's the only way. And we begin here. We begin here. And we begin in the solitude. We have this beautiful opportunity together. And we do it together. We have each other to support each other to do this very noble work, this noble endeavor. So I wish you the very best on your path as you walk and sit and look deeply at your own heart and mind. So let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And uh, just coming to a little bit after 20 after 8, so we'll have some time for walking in the, in the night, night, cool night air. And uh, we'll come back for our last sitting at 9 o'clock. Uh, so enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.